This is our hope in both life and in death. It is Christ and Christ alone. Do you have your Bible? Take it and turn with me to the little letter of First John in the back of your uh, New Testament. If you don't have notes, lift your hand and some guys will bring some notes to you. This morning we come to a passage of Scripture that I've been looking forward to uh, for two weeks. We did the uh, pro-life message last week. So this is part two from two weeks ago, and it's God's testimony of Jesus Christ. God's testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, it's uh, very exciting to me each time we come together and we open the Word of God and we start to study the Bible. And it's exciting to me because I know that this is where life comes from. In Psalm 119, it says, you give me life, O Lord, from your word. So if you want life, if you want to live abundantly, you need the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But do you know what the end of that verse says? It was in an email I sent to you yesterday. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus said, but I have come that you may have life abundant. And so this morning we come to the one who gives us life abundant, we come to his word. Now, admittedly, the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 6 through 11, really 6 through 10, are verses that to the first-time reader, you might be very confused about what he's saying. What do these things stand for? What does this mean? Admittedly, there has uh, been a wide variety of interpretations of this passage. And uh, this morning, I, I look forward to us diving in and looking at what it says and looking at the whole of Scripture in order to be able to understand this very important testimony. Now, in Jewish culture and in the Old Testament days, and not only in Old Testament days, but in the multiple societies, not only among the Jews, but also the Hebrews, but also from other cultures, very often they didn't have, well, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have video surveillance systems, they didn't have emails that could be called up, they didn't have anything when it came to a court case or when it came to a dispute by which they would be able to work and gain evidence. There was nobody who was doing fingerprints at that time. Instead, when there was issues, when there was arguments, whether it be a criminal case, a civil case, or even a philosophical case, there would have to be witnesses. There would be people who would come and testify as to what is true. And so as we come to this, we see that we fast forward into the New Testament era. We fast forward into the era of Jesus' day, and that the, the Greeks had had a tremendous impact upon the, the Mediterranean world, and then followed by that, the Romans are in charge, the Romans with their legal systems, the Romans with their courts, and we see that the Jewish people still in the midst of that Roman era testimony was very important. We see through the Old Testament that there were guidelines about receiving testimony of one, two, or three witnesses. And so you, there were limits on what you could do in accusing someone or what judgment could be made depending on the witness that was there for the truth to come out. And so, when we see John writing about who is testifying to Jesus Christ, who is testifying, listen to this, to the validity that he is the Son of God, to the validity that he is the Messiah, we want to look and see what is the evidence? What are the testimonies that are given? And so, that's very much on John's heart. And so as we've been studying this, we've been looking through um, this great passage of Scripture that helps us with that. 
Notice there the overview of 1 John. If you're new to us, maybe this is the first time you've been here or it's been many, many months or many years since you've been here, we're going to catch you right up to speed with where we've been in our study. We're already in the last chapter of this little letter of 1 John, but we can help you know what we've been studying. Look at the overview of 1 John. John writes, fill it in, to clarify and to affirm true faith in Jesus as essential to salvation. So John is writing to the churches, and he's wanting people who are coming to the churches who would hear this letter read, he is wanting to help them know what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ and and what is true about that, because there were many heresies circulating at that time that needed to be corrected. And he also wanted to help each individual be able to see whether or not they knew the Lord. And so the way that he does it, so he's clarifying and he's affirming. He's affirming those who have true faith. Look at the next line that is there. We see here in the passage that we're about to read, we see the tests, fill that in, the tests of salvation that surface over and over again in 1 John. In chapter 1, in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, these tests keep coming up, and he presents them in a different way, and sometimes he presents them more intensely. Now listen, this is very valid for us today. The repetitive nature of this helps us see that we better get it right. John was very concerned because there's a lot of people that are self-deceived. They don't either properly understand the gospel or listen to this even more dangerously. They properly understand the gospel and they have not taken it seriously. Are there some in this room today who have not properly understood the gospel? I believe probably so. Maybe, as we've talked about in starting point, maybe moralism is what has been on your heart. You know, you got to be good. And if, you, if you'll be good, then God will, he, somehow he uses Jesus, but he'll save you. Or, or maybe it's, it's, well, you know, it's depending on what pedigree you have from your background, you know, that your grandmother or your grandfather or your uncle or your friend or your saintly mother, that somehow you're, you're going to go to heaven on somebody else's coattails. Or, or maybe there's been a confusion about the essential nature of Jesus. And somehow, some way, your salvation ultimately traces back to what you believe that you're doing right, as opposed to those that are around you that are doing wrong. Well, the tests of salvation make very clear what is needed. Number one, the test of belief in Jesus as Messiah. That was the first one. That Do you believe that Jesus actually is the true Messiah? The anoint, put out there to the side of Messiah, the anointed one. Put out there to the side of anointed one, the sacrifice. This is the sacrifice for your sins. Number two, it's the test for the love of the saints. Well, here's where many spin out. They, they say, oh, well, I love Jesus, but they could give a rip about the church. In fact, they're annoyed with most people at church, and some of them say, I'm not into organized religion. And they reject the church. Well, first John says, you don't know God if that's your spirit about the church. When we see the Old Testament, it's always about God and his people, and the New Testament is always about God and his people. The American individualism, the American independence that we often have down within our makeup, within our psyche, when we apply that to the gospel, it doesn't work. You see, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. You will be held accountable individually. There's no question about that. And you must know Christ individually, but you're not on the team if you're not with the team. God has called us to recognize this, that those who love God are those who love his people. Notice number three, the test of the love of God. And so the question is, do you love God? Now, we remember with me that many would say, we see it in chapter two, that many people say, well, I love God, 
but they don't love his people. And what does it say? Well, he says, you're a deceiver. You're a liar. That's what 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3, both of them say that. So a love for God that is true, a love for God that is real. By the way, on that one, I remember in college when I started to walk with the Lord, um, I remember calling my sister one day and saying to her, she was at Sanford University, I was at Florida State University, and I just said to her, I said, you know, I read a lot in the Scripture about loving God. I see that I need to love God. I, I look at my own heart, and to be really honest, I, I'm trying to walk with the Lord. I'm trying to follow Him. I know this is at least important. I know that what mom and dad taught us is true, but if I have to be really honest I got to say, I'm not sure I love the Lord. A lot of times I'm more afraid of what he's going to take away from me than I am that I love him. And my sister very wisely said to me that night on the phone, she said, well, Andrew, maybe you just need to ask the Lord to help you love him. You know, he's a patient teacher. The Holy Spirit is a patient teacher. And if, that's, if you're starting to see that need and you're starting to admit, maybe I don't love God, well, maybe you need to ask him to help you love him. And you know, that, that was a life-changing conversation. I began to say, Lord, I'm afraid I don't love you. I'm afraid I love a lot of other things more than you. Would you help me to love you? And do you know that God began to answer that prayer? God began to convict me and encourage me and affirm me and rebuke me. God began to work in me. God's word began to come, become more alive to me as I simply said, Lord, help me love you. And, you know, you think about any, any, any father, any mother, that when their child comes and asks for a good thing, do you look at them and go, nope, I'm not giving you that. Not in a thousand years when your child comes and asks for something that's right and good and right for them. And we see it in Matthew. When they come and ask for an egg, do you give them a snake? No. When they come and ask for bread, do you give them a stone? No. If you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good things to those who are his. So the issue of loving God is very much on John's heart. So belief in Jesus as Messiah, love for the saints, that's the church of God, love for God, and then number four, we also see the test of obedience. Do you obey? Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. Well, let's read that opening passage because it links very critically to the passage that we're going to study in more depth this morning. Look at verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves, here it is, who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You see that if you love God, you're going to love everybody who's been born of him. You're going to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So there it is again. We love one another, we love God, and we obey. Look at verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So part of the picture here is, for those who know God and love God, you are going to overcome the world of sin. God is going to bring his victory by faith into your life. Your life will not be lived in defeat spiritually, but it will be lived in victory. You say, well, that's really hard for me. There's a lot of failures in my life. And I, I would say, okay, let that cause you to look and see, do I know the Lord? And if that is affirmed through the other things that we study here and by his spirit, then you can say, well, Lord, help me in my Christian victory. Look at verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So this issue of do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God is what John is hitting at. 
He's saying, do you really believe that? Is it, is it proven in your life? You see, the way you can know whether you really believe that is it affects the way you live. So this idea of cultural Christianity that says, well, you know, confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you're saved, you're good. That's all you need to do. Oh, and don't forget to fill out the card on the front row. You know, we've, we've had a very trivial view about what it means to believe in Jesus. John is blowing that out of the water. John wants us to understand that this issue of coming to true faith in Jesus Christ means believing truly that he is in such a way that it affects everything about who we are. Notice in verse 6, we now see this glorious testimony. In verse 6 it says, this is he who came by water and blood. This is referring to Jesus. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Would you circle the word testifies? That keeps coming up. That's the title of our message. This is what the passage is about. Because the Spirit is the truth. Let's all read verse 7 and 8 out loud together. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony, look what it says, that God has borne concerning his son. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son, let's read verse 12 out loud. Whoever has the son who has life Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Couldn't be any clearer. So, as we come to this verses 5 through 12, which we started last Sunday, or excuse me, two weeks ago, notice here, this is God's testimony about Jesus Christ. This is God saying to us, believe in my Son. Now again, as part of a little bit of a review, a correct view of who Jesus is, fill that in, a correct view of who Jesus is, is absolutely essential to salvation. You need to know who he is. You need to know that he is the sinless son of God. You need to know that he is the second person of the Trinity who was not created when he was born in Bethlehem, but he appeared in Bethlehem. He was born into Bethlehem as having already been in the heavens. He was the creator before the beginning of time. And he is not just, fill it in, he is not just a savior, but he is God's savior. Now, the, the idea here is that he's not saving God, he's saving you. He is God's designated Savior, and he's the only true Savior. So last, or two weeks ago, part one, you see my little note out there to the left, part one was when we looked at God gives testimony or witness of who Jesus is throughout the Bible. We walked through it two weeks ago when we looked from Genesis all the way to Jesus' birth that we see constant reference to the coming Messiah. You see, the Bible fits together like lock and key. Some of you have said, well, I don't even understand the Old Testament. I've never really read the Old Testament. Or whenever I do read the Old Testament, none of it makes sense. Well, let me tell you that the Old Testament is beautiful and it's meaningful and every bit of it is understandable. By God's grace, it's through the Old Testament that we come to truly understand the New Testament. And so they are, they are linked beautifully together. In this modern day and time, there are many churches that pay zero attention to the Old Testament, except for where there's some prosperity verse there, if it's a prosperity theology 
congregation. We need to be careful to recognize that God's Word is complete and whole in that as you submit yourself to it, as you begin to study it, as you get, let me tell you, if you don't have a good study Bible, I would recommend for you to have a study Bible. We have them in the bookstore, either the, um, the ESV study Bible or the MacArthur study Bible or even the NIV study Bible. I, the NIV is not my favorite translation, but the study notes are excellent in the NIV study Bible. I just want to commend to you that as you begin to see what the whole message of the Bible is, you will see that the Messiah is promised over and over and over. This Messiah is referenced over and over, a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years before he is born. We see that God is presenting a Messiah is going to come. And it's not going to be just any Messiah. It's going to be God's Messiah. That's the message from last week, or from two weeks ago. Notice this, the second bullet point there, the extensive prophecies regarding the precise details of Jesus' birth, life, and death from 750 or 1,000 years before he was born. We see these prophecies. And then the last one there, we see Jesus' own explanation of himself from the Old Testament scriptures the evening of the Resurrection Sunday. That means that he rose from the dead on that Sunday morning, what we call Easter morning or Resurrection Sunday. That evening, he's walking to Emmaus with some guys, and he explains to them who he is in the Scripture, and then he unveils their eyes, and they recognize he is Jesus. So somehow they were kind of blinded from that. They're working through it. They're discussing it. And then Jesus, as they're eating, he comes and he reveals to them who he is. And, they're, and it says there, I love it, it's one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture. They said when they realized who he was, they, they were marveling after he had left. They were marveling, wow, we were listening to him, we were engaging with him. And then one of them said, and did our hearts not burn within us when we walked with him? So there was something inside of them that was rejoicing in the truth. Does your heart burn within you as you come before God and learn of him and walk with him? Maybe if your heart doesn't burn within you, if there's not something that moves you, maybe you would, like my sister had given me the advice, maybe you would pray, Lord, move me with your word. Lord, cause me to love who you are. Cause me to love your word. Cause me to understand it. That's a very legitimate prayer for you to begin to pray. If you're especially a new Christian, or maybe you're an old crusty Christian. Maybe your heart's grown cold. Maybe you've developed a heart of stone. Maybe you don't read and hear from God anymore, from his word. Let me tell you that God can come and minister to the old crusty Christian, and he can cause your heart to be melted. Well, if this doesn't melt your heart as we come to part two, I don't know what will notice with me here that God gives testimony, not only throughout the Bible, but God gives testimony of who Jesus is through John. And we see that in these verses. What does this mean when he's talking about this? Notice, fill it in. There are three elements of confirming testimony. The first one is the water, the second one is the blood, and the third one is the spirit. Well, what do these mean? Well, as we think about this issue of the testimony, we need to remember that the testimony was very important. This testimony is important for us today, and it was important back at the time when John wrote these words and when Jesus was walking with us on the earth. And here's the reminder that we need to know, that there were many who rejected Jesus. In fact, the vast majority of those who were around him rejected him. Notice this and fill it in. We must remember the fierce rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, I could go through the list of all the things that he was called. He was called a con man. He was called a deceiver. He was called a magician. He was called a fraud. He was called a blasphemer. And listen to this. Perhaps the most wicked and dangerous thing that he was ever called was that he was called a demon. Now think about that. The great rebellion of seeing that here is God in the flesh, empowered by the Spirit, and for one to reject him and say, you're the devil, you're a demon, 
This is utter rejection. Now, we also, notice John 1, 11. I know some of y'all turned it, and this is just too bad because you got to turn it back. Look at John 1, 11. Look what it says. He came to his own, and those who were his own, what does it say? Did not receive him. Now, just make some notes underneath that. They rejected Old Testament prophecies, they rejected his words, and they rejected his works. They see all of this before him, and they still deny who he was. Jesus would heal people right before their very eyes, and they would reject him. Now, I want you to see and to understand that this is part of what shows us the hardness of the human heart. That a lame man suddenly walks. He's been by the pool of Bethesda all of his life. And he's leaping and running through Jerusalem. And people say, you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. A widow's son is dead. And at the funeral, Jesus comes along and raises him up. And some around accuse him of being a magician and a sorcerer. My friend, how hard does the human heart have to be? There are many people at Florida State, when I was there, people would say, well, you know, if God came and he did a miracle right now for me, I would believe. And I said, no, you wouldn't. If you're, you, the miracles have been done, and every day is a miracle. And his word is a miracle. His spirit is a miracle. And when you hear, the, and, and some who come, and we're going to see this next Sunday, as some who come and hear the word, They are strangely, miraculously moved and believe upon Christ, and others simply reject him. You see, this testimony of who Jesus is is very, very important. Old Testament prophecies were rejected, his works, his words were rejected, and his words, uh, his works were rejected. But Let's go to these three that are here. Look at the box on the page two. Look at the box that is there. Let's read again this important passage, and let's see what it says. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. So John is saying... God has brought these testimonies about Jesus and who he is as the Messiah. And the first one is the testimony of the water. And I believe that this is the baptism of Jesus. Because when we talk about the water and we see the baptism of Jesus and we talk about the blood and we see the cross and the crucifixion of Christ, we see the two bookends upon which all of our salvation rests that this was the bookends on Jesus' ministry, the fact that he was coming. In part, this is interesting, and I've made this as a note out to the side. This is for free. It's a little bit extra. The baptism of Jesus, in the baptism of Jesus, we can kind of get a little bit, bit of a view of the internal works of God, but we also have a little bit of a view of the external works of God in his salvation. God is doing all kinds of things behind the scenes. One, to bring Jesus into the world and how he did that through the conception of Jesus, a, a, a virgin uh, being conceived of the Holy Spirit. These are, these are very behind the scenes workings of God. And then we see Jesus dealing with Satan in the temptation. We see many things that are behind the scenes, behind the physical universe that we don't really understand. How does God come and and bring about a healing, bring a a life back to, bring someone back from death to life. And then then we start to see that there's also these external works. There's these external things that we can see. And that's part of what baptism was. Baptism was this outside external work helping us see what was about to happen. Now, notice here underneath this main header that Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, all of these record the baptism of Jesus. But maybe you're like me. For a long time I wondered, why was Jesus baptized? I mean, because in the back of my mind I'm thinking baptism was about repentance and Jesus was perfect. I mean, let's look at this a little bit. This is a legitimate question. Why was Jesus baptized at the beginning of his ministry? 
Well, the question that we need to ask next is, what was baptism for the Jews before Jesus came? Because there was baptism going on before Jesus ever showed up. In the first century, in the several centuries before that, there was a baptism. And notice what the baptism was that Jews practiced. It was an act of repentance and entrance for Gentile, right below that, that means non-Jewish, for Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So if you were a Greek guy, or if you were a Roman guy, or if you were a Turk, or you were an African, or you were somewhere from somewhere else in the world, and you come upon these people, you hear them talking about the creator God of the universe, you hear them teaching from the Torah, you hear them teaching from the prophets, and God's spirit begins to work within you, and you come to believe in the message of the Jewish um, faith, then the way that you would become into the nation was that you would be symbolically baptized, cleansed, repenting, and coming into the Jewish faith. So that's what they practiced, and they didn't even realize that what they were practicing, ordained by the Holy Spirit, I believe inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a picture of what's going to happen to the Messiah. The Messiah is going to die, he's going to be laid in a tomb, and he's going to be raised again. So even long before they understood that symbolism, they come for a washing in the water because that's ultimately what, what, Bapt- excuse me, what salvation does is it cleanses us. And so here they are. It's an act of repentance and entrance for non-Jews to become Jews. So that's what was going on around in the setting before John the Baptist and Jesus start preaching. But look at what happens. How was John the Baptist's baptism different? The Scripture makes very clear in multiple places his preaching and his baptism was very different. And so notice this. He called Jews to repent and enter God's spiritual kingdom. So the wild thing about John the Baptist was he is saying, oh, you, don't, you think just because you're Jewish you're in the family of God wrong. Repent of your sin and cast your hope upon God. Come and repent of your sin and be baptized. So at that point, John the Baptist looked out at Judaism Judaism in Jesus's day, and he said, it is so corrupt, and it is so wrong, and there are so few who actually come before God in proper faith. He is calling all of them to repent of their sins, to be baptized into the spiritual family that they have just thought was an ethnic family. Does that make sense? So that's why, fill it in, that's why this was radical. That's why John the Baptist was radical. And what's really interesting is most of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't know what to do with him. They would go out there and they would hear him preaching about righteousness, and they would hear him preaching against sin, and they would hear him preaching about coming to God, and they couldn't argue with that. And the crowds were coming. By God's grace, the the crowds were coming and moving, and people would go out into the wilderness to hear John preach and to be baptized. So few could argue that there wasn't a need. And so this is what is so interesting, that when Jesus walks up in the midst of John's baptizing, notice this, and and just kind of fill in here as we go, but if Jesus was sinless and baptism was for repentance, why would Jesus submit himself to baptism? Well, there's two elements to this. Number one, Jesus was sinless. And you can go back and you can look up several passages here. There's many others. This is just a few. Jesus was sinless. It is important for you to understand that this is a legitimate question because he didn't need to repent. He had never wronged God. He had never wronged another. Another interesting thing about this is is that Jesus was obedient. You know, the Jews were seeking to obey where, either right or wrong in the way that they did it. The, they did understand that obedience was part of it and that the law was given and that John the Baptist is calling people to the gospel and to, to obey. What we see that Jesus does is throughout his life, and you can notice the different passages here, Jesus was obedient. 
Jesus went to the temple when he was supposed to go to the temple. Jesus paid the temple task, tax when he was supposed to pay the temple tax, tax. Jesus was obedient to all that was before him that was the true law. So he was sinless and he was obedient. So why did he need to be baptized? Answer, here you go. Notice this. Jesus always fulfilled what God required of his people. This is amazing that the creator of the universe would come and, and fulfill what he had required of his people. Jesus obeyed in all things. Number two, this is amazing. Jesus publicly identified himself with sinners that are destined for death. So when Jesus was baptized, he is coming and he's not above them to not be baptized. Because why? Jesus is willing to identify himself with all of your sin. That is amazing. I want you to think about that. Jesus is willing to identify himself with your millions of sins. The perfect holy one of heaven who created all things, who has never sinned, has no imperfection whatsoever. The holy, holy, holy King of kings and Lord of lords is willing to come and identify himself with sinners. And let's think about the examples of that. What are the types of sinners that Jesus, when he was on the earth, when he was doing his three years of ministry, what are the types of sinners that Jesus hung out with? Okay, tax collectors, those are the official ripoffs from the Roman government. Who else? Prostitutes. Oh, this woman that's so unclean. Thieves. He's hanging out with thieves. He's hanging out with liars. Think about this. Now, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say it. Fishermen. You say, well, are they automatically sinners? Well, they're usually liars. You know, how big was it? You know, whatever. I'm a fisherman, so I, I can't say that. But what do I mean by that, though, except that Jesus would associate himself with people that society had kind of sidelined, shepherds and sinners. And so Jesus willingly does that. Listen to this and be encouraged by this for your own heart. Maybe you're you, you've not come to God yet. Maybe you're here and you're listening. Listen, and, and for many of you, maybe you feel like, there's no way I can really come to God. He won't really have me. I, I'm so messed up. If you really knew who I am, can he really say, I've got to get myself together, and then I'll, I'll pray that prayer with you guys. Then I'll become a Christian, trust in Jesus, maybe be baptized. Listen, friends. No, here we see in the Scripture that Jesus was willingly identifying himself with sinners. In fact, the people who thought themselves to be so righteous, who thought themselves to be so in line with the Word of God, condemned him for that. Jesus publicly identified himself with sinners who were destined for death, and that's what his baptism is picturing. Just like they needed to repent, he comes and says, I am going to become sin, I am going to die, and I am going to be raised again. Notice this, Jesus the innocent would become, fill it in, would become the very sin that he was not on the cross. He was perfect, he was holy, he was not sinful, but the scripture tells us, as we're going to read in just a minute, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God. Notice the fourth one, Jesus, the God of life would go to death, circle that, would go to death for his own. For his own children, this God of life would go to death. And that's what baptism is picturing. He's beginning his ministry. We see at the beginning the view of where the ark is going, where the, where the trajectory is going to land. It's going to land at the cross. You see, notice this, fill it in if it's not clear already. Jesus' baptism foretells his coming death and the resurrection to life. That's what the picture is. 
Jesus is going all the way from the beginning all the way to the end. Now, I want you to read the passage with me. Just notice here, I'll read it aloud, you read silently, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I think it'll make a lot more sense since we've just done that question, done that issue. Look at Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need, to be ba- I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Do you see John had my question. John had perhaps your question. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? John is saying, no, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. Look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus is it, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus is here to fulfill the law. Jesus is here to fulfill the need for righteousness, and he's here to completely obey the Father. And so he's looking at John the Baptist, and he's saying, look, cousin, you just need to baptize me. You need to trust me right now. You just need to baptize me. John the Baptist didn't understand. John the Baptist didn't see it yet. Look what it says, then he, what does it say? Consented, so he went along, he said okay. Look at verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, look at this, the testimony, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a what? Circle that word dove, descending like a dove, and coming to rest upon him. You see, there's the symbolism of the baptism coming. There's the symbolism of the dove coming and resting upon him. In verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven. So here's the Father. Jesus is standing there having just been uh, baptized as the Son. The Spirit is coming as a dove. There's the Spirit. And then now, the voice from heaven, the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am what? Well pleased. You see, this is the one who's going to be going to the cross to bring my people home to me. This is God himself laying down his life for his own. What an amazing humility. What an amazing humility that Jesus would submit himself to John the Baptist's baptism. All is the picture that he would become our sin and that he would take our sin to the cross and be resurrected from the dead. So here's a very key question. If Jesus would publicly identify with you as a sinner by his own baptism, by his own baptism, why wouldn't you identify with him as your savior by your own baptism? Is there any reason that you would refuse to be baptized? Jesus, the perfect one of the universe, comes and lays down in the water showing that he's going to the cross for you. Is there anyone here that would say, I'm not going to do that. It'll mess up my hair. I'm not going to do that, I, you know, to be in front of those people. Jesus was in front of the world. The creator of the universe in all antiquity through the witness of his word knows that the the holy one of heaven would come and humble himself to be born into a horse's stall, grow up with humans, and be mocked and ridiculed, and then as he begins his ministry would go and lay down in the waters of baptism for sins that he did not commit but that he would willingly take upon himself. And you're going to reject that? My friend, I call upon you to receive him. I call upon you to follow him in baptism. I call upon you to follow him in faith and obedience. Let's go not only to the testimony of the water, but let's go to the testimony of the blood. We far more often preach on the testimony of the blood. We far more often talk about the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, and and rightly, Uh, we do. This is the crucial, critical moment. 
that brings salvation to sinners. And we see that the crucifixion account, notice there underneath number two, it's in Matthew 27, it's in Mark 15, it's in Luke 23, and it's in John 19. Those gospel writers all carry and all record the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want you to see the great meaning of the crucifixion here in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Look what it says. For our sake, that's very important, for our sake, he, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, look what it says, to what? To be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him, circle that, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Put out there to the side in quotes, saints. That's why the Bible calls us saints, that we've been made the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. Saints are not some statue in St. Peter's Square in Rome. They're not some stained glass window that you learned about. They're not some person that you pray to. That is not a saint. A saint is anyone who has been cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross made ready for heaven. That is what a saint is. And friends, notice what he does. That the Father causes the Son to become sin. Who knew no sin so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why you can never earn salvation for yourself. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get it right. You're never going to make yourself ready. It is only Jesus who can make yourself ready. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Notice what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses, you see, your sin causes you to die, for the wages of sin is death. So look at verse 13. For you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you say, okay, that's weird. Why are they bringing up circumcision? This was the, the covenant symbol of being in the family of God. And your flesh was not, your heart was not in the family of God. So that was part of what we see in the Old Testament with God with his people. This was the mark of his people. And so here we're seeing, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means that you were not truly saved. God made alive together with him. Underline that, with him. This is, this is how God makes you alive together. It's with Jesus, with him. Having forgiven us of, what does it say? All our trespasses. Can you circle the word all? You see, that's why you're clean. Completely and totally clean. Not because you cleaned yourself up, but because God cleaned you up. Verse 14, let's read it out loud together. As I, I'm going to back up a little bit and then you join me on verse 14. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is this glorious testimony that God can forgive sin. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the testimony of God's love for us. Now, I want you to notice some other things that happened at the moment that Jesus was dying on the cross. While he was dying on the cross, this is, fill it in, God's supernatural testimony at the crucifixion of Christ. So God starts doing some stuff. I mean, we're talking some serious stuff in the moments when Jesus is on the cross. We see it not only in Matthew, but also in other places, in other gospels, but Matthew carries it concisely. Look at this. The first thing was darkness fell in the middle of the day. It becomes dark. He's on the cross, and as sin is, is there overtaking and coming over the very Lamb of God, darkness falls on the earth. People look around and they see the storm of darkness. And then while he's there, as he dies and he gives up the ghost, look at this, and the veil in the temple 
was torn, notice what it says, from top to bottom. So this veil that is over 40 feet high and several inches thick that no human being or even a group of men could not tear apart, this fabric veil that was extreme, it was like steel, is torn from the top to the bottom. And what did that veil separate? It separated the holy of holies from the temple. And so what God is saying is, is through the death of my son, you can now enter in. This is an amazing symbol of God. This is an amazing supernatural testimony that this crucifixion is of the Christ. And look at this, the earth shook and rocks split open. Tombs opened, this is one of the most amazing ones. Tombs opened, Old Testament believers came to life and started walking around in Jerusalem. I mean, that is shocking. I don't know who all of them were, but it, it, I want you just to imagine the, the incredible spiritual power and cosmic power of what's going on over the crucifixion of the Messiah at that moment at 3 p.m. in the afternoon when the lamb is being offered, the, 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 the lamb of, of God is being offered in the temple and outside the town on the hill of Calvary, the true son of God, the true lamb of God is dying at that very moment and the power that is being seen wakes the dead. Tombs open and the resurrection power of God is seen. I mean, that is truly mind-blowing. I mean, there's, you know... You see the mummy movies, you see all of that, the zombies coming out of the ground and everything. I don't think they look like zombies. I, 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 I don't know, can't wait to get to heaven and ask more about that. Can you imagine the people in Jerusalem when they see this? Old Testament saints coming to life. And then here's the greatest miracle of all. A Roman soldier says, truly, this was the Son of God. This is when a sinner sees the Savior and recognize, recognizes him. You know, the miracle of salvation is far greater than any darkness that would fall on the day. It's far greater than any veil that would be torn. It's far greater than earthquakes. It's far greater than tombs even being opened. When a sinner repents and sees the Savior, that's the greatest miracle of all. Have you repented and seen the Savior and say, this is the Son of God? You see, this is the testimony of the crucifixion. And God also has the testimony of the Spirit. And this is a beautiful picture. And number three is going to be started here, and it's going to be continued, heads up, in part three of this message. So we're, we're still in one sermon, unless you guys just want to keep going. We can keep going, three, four o'clock, Okay. Um, but notice here, number three, the testimony of the Spirit. This is the Spirit of truth. That's a very important term. It's a very important nomenclature of who the Holy Spirit is to you and to me. The great difference between truth and falsehood, between truth and lie, has never been more starkly seen as the Holy Spirit of God and the fallen spirit of man. We are obsessed with lies in this world. We gravitate to the lies. Except for the Holy Spirit of God, we would never come to the truth. It is the Holy Spirit of God that brings us to the truth that lets us know the truth, that convinces us of the truth, that testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. You need to believe in him. You need to follow him. You need to trust in him. You need to obey him. It's the spirit that brings life. Look at John chapter 14, verses 15 and 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We've seen that over and over and over again. If you're not keeping his commandments, if you're toying with sin, if you're walking and practicing in sin, ignoring his commandments, you do not love him. Beware, you're in danger. Young people, old people, whoever you are, 
People have been around forever. People haven't been around forever. If you don't keep his commandments, if you do not follow him, you are in danger. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what does it say? Helper to be with you for how long? Forever. Verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, this is John 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who are going to believe and to follow him even after the crucifixion and the resurrection. We see that he is saying to them, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments and I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you. Look at John 15, verse 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he, look what it says, he will bear witness about me. You see, this is the testimony that this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah, and he bears witness about him. And that's when, when for those of you who are saved, When you finally came to believe, it finally became real to you. When you finally said, it's really true, it's really him, and he really has forgiven me, he really does receive me. When that moment comes and you come to truly believe upon him, listen, friend, that's how it happens. The Spirit of God bears witness in your spirit, and you believe upon him. Look at verse 27. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Here's the picture. Not only does the Spirit bear witness of me, but you, as my followers, are going to bear witness of me. Look at the last one here, John chapter 16 and verse 13 through 15. Look what it says in verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into what? All truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but what, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, this is part of that interesting and mysterious working of God within the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Father, Son, and the Spirit have this beautiful interrelated relationship where the Father honors the Son, the Son honors the, the Father, the Son obeys the Father, The Father sends the Son. They exalt one another. We see this perfectly harmonious relationship within who God is in his essence. And here we see that playing out. That the Spirit, look what it says in the middle of verse 13. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14. And he, this is talking about the Spirit, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see this is this beautiful mystery working together? Verse 15. And all that the Father has is what? Is mine. Therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, this one who would go to the cross is God. This one who goes to the cross is God. This one who comes to live within you is God. The one who draws you to realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior is God. The one who inspires his words so we can know what he has said and what he would do and what he calls us to do is God. He declares to us the goodness in the truth of God. He is the spirit of truth. We live in a day, friends, listen, there is a spirit spirit of falsehood that is around us. It has invaded the world. Yes, it's been here since the fall, but it's heating up. It's heating up. Deception is rampant. When we get to the place where we just, we look at very plain and obvious things and say, that's not, that's not real or that's not true. My friends, the world is deceived when the world says exalt yourself love yourself honor yourself be true to yourself god says don't do that be true to me 
bring your broken self to me and I will heal you. The world isn't all about you. The world, he would say, is about me and it's about my people. Come and submit yourself to that. This is why the scripture says, when they came to Jesus and asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that is not the word of the world. The word of the world is love yourself, honor yourself, indulge yourself, defend yourself, worship yourself. And God says, come to me, all you who are weary and tired of that message, and I will give you rest. You see, in all of this, we see, fill it in, the Spirit The Spirit of God was crucially involved. I don't know how else to say it. I'm just saying crucially involved in Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And I want you to see this and think about with, with me with this. It was the Holy Spirit that caused Mary to conceive, right? So it's in his conception. It's in his baptism. The form of the dove comes down. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and fasting before his ministry began, and then Satan comes in the most truly cosmic temptations that we perhaps have ever seen, comes and three times tempts Jesus in his time perhaps of physical weakness to bow down and worship him. And Jesus resists each time with the word of God The Bible says that the Holy Spirit came and ministered to Jesus. And then we see throughout his entire ministry that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is that which is bringing healing. The Spirit of the Lord is that which is coming and moving in people and working in those around Jesus as he proclaims to them God. He says, the Spirit is upon me. And friends, here's the amazing thing, and we're going to talk about this in the next message. Notice this. The Spirit is not only crucially involved in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, but the Spirit is crucially involved in every true Christian's life and ministry. In this testimony about Jesus, we see that His Spirit is not only for Jesus, but His Spirit is for Jesus his people. And so you're not left to fend on your own. You're not, these commands are not too burdensome for you when you have God's Spirit empowering you to obey. So when you read this text and you say, well, what is the water? What is the blood? What is the Spirit? How does this testify of who Jesus is? I hope that you see clearly that God's word means something in everything that it says. And that you see that God is always testifying to his Messiah. And it's so that you may be saved. Would you stand with me for prayer? Some of you right now are struck by this word. You're struck by the need that you have for Jesus, and you're not sure what to do. Some of you would say, well, I've come, and or maybe I've been here forever, but there's been something wrong, but there's something wrong, and I'm not right with God. Friend, I just invite you to come to trust in Jesus, the one who was baptized for you, showing what he would do for you when he would live three years proclaiming the gospel and then he would die on the cross. And his baptism included his resurrection out of the water that day by John the Baptist, and it was showing that he would come back to life. He would come out of the tomb 30 
three years later and that he would vanquish sin and death. That means that you can know God. Today, I invite you in the quietness of your heart right now to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord, I no longer want to trust in anything else or despair in everything else. Today, Lord, I want to trust in you to be my Savior and my Lord. Today, would you turn away from your sin and turn to the perfect Savior who died for you? I invite you to Christ. I invite you to Christ. On either side of this pulpit, over on the left and on the right, there's people there that would love to pray with you this morning. They would love to help you with that. I just call you to that. I'm going to be here. I would love to talk to you about that. Don't leave this day today. Don't leave this place today without being right with Christ, receiving Christ. And then I want to call you to be baptized. Say, if he was publicly willing to be baptized for me, I want to be baptized for him. Father in heaven, may unbelievers become believers today, I pray. And may, Lord, believers be encouraged to live boldly the gospel in their lives, to live gratefully, to live purely, to be growing in holiness, to be saying no to the foolishness and the lies and the vices of the world. Lord, that we would say no to garbage on the internet, that we would say no to conflicts in the family, that we would say no to wrong gain in work, that we would say no to the anger of the world, and that we would say yes to the glory of Christ that we would proclaim to the world that there's a Savior who died and he rose again so that we can go free. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be on our lips, that we'd not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would declare it beautifully, openly to all those that are around us. In the glorious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.